Motivational Cowboy, and welcome to the Outstanding Life Podcast, and I am sitting right now at a ranch that is just incredible. I'm sitting around three totally cool guys. We have Chuck Dodge here with me, we got Tom Whitmire, and we got Brent Laponsky. Did I say that right, Brent? Nope, you sure did. Okay. Laponzi. Laponzi, yeah. Laponzi. You you say it. Laponze. You say you say it so much better, but I know you as Redbeard. Yeah. Hey, and I can't thank you enough for having us here at the house here at the ranch. And uh thanks for for, for the tour earlier, man. I, I tell you what, I I I want to take a little bit of this podcast and talk a little bit about where we're at, your ranch, and what you have going on here. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Uh, my ranch is called Spike Horn Ranch. Uh, there's some meaning in that. Uh, you know, if you know anything about a spike horn, it's a young deer uh, in its fledgling years. So that's kind of what this ranch wants to stay that way. It wants to stay youthful and in- invasive and innovative. Uh, the uh, town is called Brent Creek. So Brent Creek was wait located- a second. Is it named after you? No, no. The town. Ta- <laughs> like, wait I, a second here. My my vintage year is seventy five. <laughs> this was established in eighteen. 18- 85. Okay. So quite a long time ago, it was the halfway point between Montrose and Flushing. And this is where the grain was brought in from the farmers. They had well, the property that I'm on here has, was where the depot was. And then the livestock and then the elevator was uh, adjacent to it. Awesome. Awesome. And, th- and then you have uh, like so much going on here. I'm looking at, I'm looking out the uh, window right now. I'm looking at a bunch of Christmas trees. So were you a Christmas tree farmer this year? Uh, well, not a farmer. I I opened a Christmas lot, a Christmas tree lot. And so uh, 12 years ago, I had the vision of doing this idea. So what I was doing, I was buying storage units and I acquired a lot of Christmas items that I couldn't sell in the summertime because this is not the time to sell Christmas items. Right. So that I ended up getting quite a surplus of it. So I thought, well, well, how can I move this product and what can I draw them in? Because it's not enough to draw them in just with these ornaments right, right. and lights. I need something else. So I thought, well, I'll get Christmas trees and try to find some really nice Christmas trees. And the state of Michigan has a beautiful West Coast. And if you've noticed how the fruits grow there, the trees also grow beautiful on that coast. So I imported the trees from the West Coast of Michigan. Okay. And there's a little fee, there's a little cost in that, but the reward is that the quality of the trees that I had were outstanding. They grade them in one, two, and three. One being presentable on three sides, guaranteed. Uh, mine happened to be four. Most of them were presentable on all four sides. So you technically could put the Christmas tree in the middle of the room and still have a presentation 360 degrees around it. Your trees still look great to this day. Yeah, I had six variety, and they were cut right at the right time. And I think the this year, being my first year, I'm learning a lot about it. I believe that the weather was just perfect for it. Yeah. We just had the perfect weather. Uh, although I've heard other tree farms had a lot of problems with needles dropping. Okay. I actually had an individual show up and say that they bought a tree, the needles fell off, and they're not going back to that farm, and they want to buy another tree, and they bought it from me. Uh, one of the biggest obstacles that I had over, to overcome is tradition. Okay, Tradition is a powerful thing. Powerful Especially thing. Especially at Christmas. You know, earlier uh, I, I was talking with Chuck Dodges here, and we were talking about how we how a word becomes ingrained into us. Yeah. It, where where one would say, oh, fear. You know, uh, I like the acronym false evidence appearing real. Like oh. this idea say that- Say that again. Fear, false evidence appearing real. So fear usually is something that I, I've developed in my in myself. And then I reflect that and I see that. And, and in that process- it becomes real. And boy, with an imagination, which I believe source provides imagination. Because I've always wondered, where do I get my imagination from? Is it from my mom? Is it from my dad? Was it public school? 
and they don't really give me the imagination. I don't right. know where that energy comes from when I when I think about it. But as if I think about it long enough, I know where it comes from. It comes from the source. Mm-hmm. Some call it God. Some call it, have many names for the source. Uh, the Grand Architect, I like that yep. name. Uh, and it comes from there. So I've been gifted with a, a large imagination. Uh, so I have to utilize that. I have to learn how to control it. I, I know we were talking about ohms earlier. I need to put a little bit of ohms in my imagination if I want it to be a success in this third dimension. Yeah. Because this third that. dimension has regulations and rules of the third dimension that I have to follow. So I do have to neck it down, if you will. And that's what uh, resistance does in ohms in the electrical current. I don't know how, I don't know if you know how to knock it down a little bit because when, when I rolled up here and I saw the all the trees out front and then I saw all the vintage snowmobiles, then I saw the lights, then I saw the tractors. I mean, you literally made this a, a, a statement place to come for the community. And, and earlier we were talking and, and, um, there was a lot of memories that you made this year with a lot of families that you never even met before. Well, talk talk a little bit about some of those traditions that that you created for other people. Well, as I was saying about the tradition, so I'm overcoming in in the market of people have a tendency to go to the same place to get their Christmas tree. Right. So I'm I'm have to I have to start new traditions and being it's during this pandemic that that we they've called it, uh, it's this uh, what a what a spot for opportunity. Right. I love that, guys. He he's not looking at the negative side of it. He's going, "Hey, listen, man, opportunity is knocking, and well, I'm going to open the door." My profession is built out of out of a downturn economy. My profession tends to do well. I mean, that's not why I went into the profession, but it does it does fall into that. So I guess it's how you see things. It's your perspective. What's my perspective on it? What's my perspective on it? And so I I see the opportunity. People didn't want to want to go in big crowds. Mm-hmm. People needed a place to get photos. And, and so I provided that by having a backdrop, if you will. There yeah. was no snow. I had sand brought in. And, you know, I believe there's something that's called serendipity and serenity, which comes with um, synchronicity. So it's this connection. When I'm following the will of God or, or what I'm supposed to be doing, right. not something else, usually that's, uh, of course, in miracles talks about love. If I'm everything that's sane is love, anything that's insane is not love. So when things are insane, that's the lack of love. So when I see insanity, I can see that's lacks love. So when I come back to love, it's doing the right thing. And that can be debatable, what's right and wrong. And I, I like the idea that everything is good yep. in the universe. I may not like the way it makes me feel when I'm going through it because I have a, a vision of what I think it should look like. But every time I ever think that how things are supposed to look like, they are never like I think. It's either greater than or less than. Right. Never have I been perfectly right about what the future right. looks like. <laughs> and there's a whole lot of people listening right now that know exactly what you're talking about. So acceptance is the key there. That's, That's the right. golden key is acceptance to, to be able to let the things be what they are. And so with this with this idea, one, I could fulfill an old, because I like to, the um, what's, you know, um, finish Finish an imagination, yeah. finish a, a vision. And so this started 12 years ago, like I was saying about the ornaments. And so it, it, it got sidetracked, and I could talk about that, and, and the sidetrack was wonderful. I mean, that's how I met Chuck Dodge. Mm-hmm. That's how I met Tom Whitmire, is I opened up a store that someone had offered me an opportunity to sell my ornaments that I had gotten through them storage units. They offered me a chance to sell them, and that blossomed to a three-and-a-half-year uh, open store that I had, a brick and mortar store, which t- attached me to a political realm, attached me to Toastmasters, att- attached me to the Chamber of Commerce. I, I ran for office. So much come out of that. Mm-hmm. I, I 
I even they even gave me the award Citizen of the Year in 2010, I know, that which was, was cool. Awesome. Which is cool. Yeah. Like, and my friends coming from my past because I have a, a a dark past. So my friends that's known me for a lot of years was like, wow, I, we're surprised that they picked you for that. <laughs> you know, but people do change. We're, that's right. They old dogs can learn new tricks, and people do change. Uh, and and so in that process, I never did get the tree part to it. So now, twelve years later, the opportunity come up where I could do the tree part and fulfill that that vision that I had. Yeah. Uh, and and when it, when it comes to visions, I know I'm kind of all over the place. No, but when I'm I when, you. It, when it comes to visions, I like to see the vision. So with this Christmas tree farm, this this one, and not a farm. I take that back. Lot Christmas lot because I did not grow them. Someone right. else grew them and I brought them in. Uh, but I propped them up and and I had six different varieties and and I seen it already. I already seen it. And then I did what I had to do backstepping from the vision. Okay, what do I got to do tomorrow morning? Right. And that's like, get up, get some coffee, check the bank account, see where you start, call the, you know, the yeah. little things. But I think a lot of times people get caught up in that. So they they, they say, well, I want to do, we, we both, we'll, we'll set a table and say, well, okay, we're both going to do a Christmas tree lot. I'm already seeing the tree lot. The kids there jumping around. I see them getting their pictures taken. I've already seen the vision. Right. Where they're like, well, what do I got to do? And they get caught up in that. They get they get gridlocked in, mm-hmm. in this idea. Where am I going to get the money? Who's going to show up? And and they get caught up in those steps to get there. So I kind of back back because those things are those can be done. Those that's just the vision's the part that's the hard part. That's right. Or, 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 let, let me add to this because Brent, you've really tapped into something that's powerful for creating, and that is Neville Goddard talks about coming from the goal, the vision, coming from it. That's where the energy is, as opposed to just going to it. Going to it is a bunch of process. Mm. You don't feel it. It's like taking a vacation. All right. You know where you're going. You feel it. That that was powerful. Uh, so come from the goal as opposed to to it. I like that. And, uh, you know, so we were talking about different experiences that I had. So, you know, uh, people showed up and uh, I tell you what, like, I like to say this and, uh, you know, I, there's certain things I don't want to sell. There's not a lot of fun in selling. It's fun to sell novel. It's fun to sell fun. I, and I say that when, when I open my canoe business and people would ask me about my canoe, I own a canoe livery where I rent canoes and kayaks right. on the Flushing River or and Flushing on the Flint River. Right. And I rent them from Flushing to Montrose. So it actually now goes right by my ranch here, basically. Uh, and I would tell people, say, well, you know, they would want to know the numbers. People like numbers and stuff. Well, mm-hmm. is it making any money? Is it da 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 da? You know? But here's the deal. When, when, I'm doing a lot of things when I rent that canoe to somebody. They're having an f- experience. That's so right. I'm selling an experience. And I, who would have thought that the millennials don't want to buy stuff? They want to buy experiences. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that till someone told it. me that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't have any kids, so it's hard to know what the millennials are doing unless you get real close to them. Right. You know, and, and, and listen to them. And, you know, sometimes they're hard to listen to. And sometimes they don't want to talk. Millennials aren't, aren't uh, open. They're, they're in their computer. They're on their phone. Right. You know, they're, they're in a different place and they want experiences. And so when I would rent canoes, that would be an experience. I thought, man, and I used to say that then, and I say this about the Christmas tree, I don't really want to sell a caskets and I don't really want to sell furnaces. Those are, when people buy a furnace, they usually buy it because they have to, and they don't really want to because there's broke. Right. And of course we know about the casket. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I could see that would be a hard thing to sell, but selling the canoes or selling Christmas trees, the people would come there in their best. It's the be, it's it's the birth of Christ for the Christians. Mm-hmm. It's a, a pagan ritual having a tree, like the people people that are that are paganists that believe in the the tree being you know the tree of life or, or Odin, the god Odin from the north. So 
people would come and buy it. And some people just do the old American thing. They're not hung up on the religious side of it. They're just going to have the party. The family come together. They're going to have a dinner. They're going to light that tree up. And I could experience that. I could have that. And when their children are here and with them there, it, it's that's probably... Of course, I need the money to survive. I understand uh, the economic idea that I have to have money to survive, but the reward from the experience, uh, the money I spend, that can, and, and I could lose the money. Yeah, but I can't be that can't be taken from me. Talk a little bit about the one, one of the experiences, and that was um, you um, with a family, and it be, because you just said it, you said it's not about the money. You, yeah, you have to live. We all have to live, but um. A lady pulled up and she only had X amount of dollars. Talk a little bit about that experience, about what you gave her. But then what you got back was not just the financial part of it. It was something bigger than just money. Well, a, a lady had pulled in and she was looking at the trees and she wasn't, uh, she, she kind of looked d- discouraged. And so I, I went out there to see, you know, what, what sale I was going to make. And I, the prices were steeper than she could afford. And mm-hmm. so she threw me out with all that she had. And then I told her, I said, well, then. Uh, she she wanted me to reduce a tree for her. Yeah. So I just said, pick any one you want. I don't care which one she picked. You know, I have 180 trees out here, six varieties, and they range uh, quite a bit different range. And you know, so she picked out the tree that uh, what whatever she had, and uh, very grateful, very mm-hmm. happy. And then she turned around uh, the next day or the day after and brought cookies to me. And I, I mean, she was so happy that. And then two days later. Her daughter brings me cookies and thanks me for being kind to her mother. Wow. And I thought, whoa, shoot. And of course, who don't like cookies? Right, right. <laughs> so so the, the Christmas trees, The another thing you like is motorcycles. I yeah. Mean, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I grew up with motorcycles and the whole thing that comes around it. And as a young man, like I was saying about the darker years of my life, there, it, 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 the motorcycle world and the culture behind it really helped perpetuate the darkness that I strived for. Because as a man thinketh, he becomes. So as a young boy, I, I seemed to like the villains, and I seemed to magnetize towards that. And the motorcycle clubs and the motorcycle world helped perpetuate that. It perpetuated me into the darkness. And I got real close to that. And then I, I, you know, I had a revelation in 2009, and the world seemed different. Uh, and it's hard to explain that how it is. Just it, I didn't. My perspective changed. I had a a spiritual experience or, or a psychic change of some sort, and in that process, uh, I thought that I would lose the motorcycle world because I had such an attachment to it with the culture. And uh, oh boy, that was wrong. I was wrong there. I I, I got actually more into the motorcycle world, and uh, ended up working uh, in a bar that's owned by a motorcycle club. And uh, boy, I, I can do more work there than I could ever do. Uh, with helping people recover from the disease of alcoholism uh, uh, when they're in it, you know, because if you go to the local place where it's recovery or, or it's uh, a church, well, everybody at church has got God. They're all there. Right. They already got it. There's, they're all taken care of, you know, and same with a, a counseling or recovery place. But when you go to a place like the bar, they, they don't have it. They don't, they, I mean, they're, I mean, you have to have um, um, compassion and, uh, Oh, I, I don't even know what the word is because you have to be careful not to, not to, uh, um, you know, because most people that are in the darkness are trying to suck other people into it one way or another. Right. They're draining, you know, so we have to, it's tough love and then it's also uh, nurturing and uh, you, you commiserate, I guess, with the um, mm-hmm. ignorant. But uh, the unignorant, there's no room for commiseration. If they have the opportunity and they've been taught something different, then it's not my place to commiserate with them. Now, I have to feel empathy for them, but not to commiserate. But the ones that's ignorant have no clue I can, I can help them 
basically just a conduit. I, I, there's not much I can do in the physical world. I can just be a conduit. And I heard Chuck Dodge talk about it, about being an example or, or a mentor that I can't inspire people by, like, I don't, I, I wish I knew how to make people, I wish I knew how to teach uh, enthusiasm or teach uh, ambition. I think that he does. And I think that you guys can see that. I mean, knowing the little that I know you, I mean, you are, you have a way with people that I've never seen a person have their way with people like you. I mean, I, I, I seen it today when you, you sold a couple of snowmobiles when, when I was here, oh, you yeah, know what I mean? And, and, and just the way that you like are with stuff. people. And sometimes you don't have to, to know everything. Sometimes you just have to be that ear or that shoulder for somebody to cry on. Well, and again, I heard it earlier today talking with Chuck Dodge. We, t- we talked about the idea that uh, people love to talk about what they know. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to know anything about that snowmobile, technically. Right. He'll t- the guy will tell me all about it. He taught me more. And he did. <laughs> he taught me more about snowmobiles. Uh, I, I mean, I can read the side. It says it's this make, model, or whatever. And and I'm not a snowmobile guy. Yeah. My first snowmobile I bought was, in, was 2017. I bought it for $100. And I rode it about 80 miles on it. And I had the best time. And next thing you know, I got, uh, I'm got i into vintage snowmobiles. And I got a, um, a member of the Antique Snowmobile Club. Yeah. So uh, I don't know a lot about snows. I do know a lot about motorcycles. Yeah, no. And, and so, but, but, but what I'm saying is you are that teacher. You are that, that person for a lot of people. I mean, I, I can see the, the, um, just by knowing you, I can see how you've touched people's lives and helped them through the darkness like you've been through. Well, my friends like to say, call me the bouncer counselor. Uh, when I'm, when I'm, wor- when I'm working, when I'm working at that's Tom Whitmire come up with that. I think, uh, but, coined and trademarked. Uh, and you know, that's me standing at the door. I, I've been doing it for over a decade. Yeah. And uh, so every weekend for over a decade, I've been standing there watching uh, what uh, drugs and alcohol do to people. And not everybody. Right. Some people know how to come in, have a few drinks, enjoy themselves and leave. Some people are, they get stuck there um, because of the disease. Once that once they pick up, all bets are off. They're, um, they lost their willpower, if right. you will. And I, and I think, my, this is just my theory, I don't, I don't know, but the Christians talk about we're born with free will, that man has free will. And somehow the disease of alcoholism takes away man's choice. He lost the power of choice where some people get angry at him and say, why don't you, do, why don't, they used to say it to me. Why don't you grow up? Why don't you just quit? Why do you got to drink so much? Can't you just have one? Why don't you just stop? Can't you see it's ruining your life? And I, and they would ask me, why do you keep drinking like that? When you know, evidence shows that it hurts you. Evidence shows that it's your I too, I, I too have had 30 jobs in the 90s. So it ain't just the 80s. I have 30 <laughs> jobs and I lived over a dozen places, you know, because yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot and move. Like when the pressure's on, I'm out. You ain't firing me. I'm leaving before you fire me. <laughs> right. You know, I'm yeah. shooting a move, shooting a move, constantly shooting a move. And at some point there was no more moves to shoot. I had reached the crossroad and that's when the spiritual awakening came. And it was like last house on the left. Either I go on to the bitter end this life, blotting out my existence, or I change. And and the change isn't something I have the ability to do. Because if I had the ability to do it and I seen the problem it did, I would have done it long ago, right? Right. So somewhere I lost the, the free will. I lost the power of choice. And uh and so I see this disease in people that I where I work. And you know, it's kind of a weird dance because we want people to spend their whole paycheck there because you know it's the <laughs> yeah. bar. We gotta pay the light bill. <laughs> But yet there's also this other side to it, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I guess the best I can do, because I can't, I've learned that I can't get anybody sober. 
and I don't get anybody drunk. Right. Yeah. But I can show that you don't have to drink. I remember when I was told that the words strung together, you never have to drink again. And I thought, what? (laughs) I had heard, why don't, like I told you, why don't you just stop? Why don't you grow up? Can't you just, but I never heard that I never had to do it again. Right. And boy, what a liberating thing that was to hear. Because I swear, when I was young, I thought that was the passage of manhood. I thought, because like I said, I liked that dark side and, and I just led right into it. And all those men drank. I looked at them Easy Rider magazines and it was naked women and chrome and booze and drugs. Yeah. So I thought that was the normal passage of manhood. I felt bad for the guy that didn't drink. I thought that's the best they're going to feel when they woke up. That's the best they're going to feel all day. Yeah. Little did I know because they did, you don't know what you don't know. That's right. And Chuck talked about that in the previous episode. Yeah, I, you know? I don't know what I don't know. So I didn't know. I started drinking at 15, and I just kept doing it yeah. for 20 years. So I, I didn't know what it was like to be to live right. I don't know what it was like to stay on the path that which is narrow. I don't you know, I was in the dark, man. I need, but then when I found the light, like the light on the path. Now, I, I'm not saying I don't drift off that path still. But prior to, to the awakening, I could drift really far and suffer. Mm-hmm immensely suffer. I reached a place of suffering where I couldn't tell pleasure from pain. I would say I'm having fun. I'm saying we're all partying, but yet it was killing me. I could not tell what was pleasure and pain. It was so close together. And, and at that point, you know, uh, I, 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 how resilient, I heard the word resilient earlier today. Yeah. Resilient to keep that way. And, and also this, this, um, we hate to admit we're wrong, right? Yeah. Hate to admit we're wrong. So I stuck to my guns for years on all sorts of things. And and I, with the awakening, I realized that I can say I don't know. I can say I'm wrong. Right. And that's a big deal. That helps me get rid of that resistance, you know, that, that resentment. Resentment, living that same thing over and over. You know, I had an experience. Let's say somebody slighted me, a woman hurt me, uh, a job, a boss. And then I had that experience and I keep reliving it. I resend it, a resentment. I keep living it over in my mind. And then I want to, I want to, retaliate, that person doesn't feel it. it. It's like me drinking the poison and thinking they're going to die from it. Right. You know, it's in, in, in that process, all it does is hurt me. Right. So I had to learn how to let that stuff go to break that down and, and move forward. And, uh, high acceptance is the key to all my problems. <laughs> so something else, I, you know, in the, in the very beginning, I said you were one interesting man, uh, something uh, else you do. You're an auctioneer. Yeah. You, I mean, how did that come into your life? Well, uh, I mean, do you just talk fast all the time and I, you're like, hey, someone's like, I need somebody like you for tomorrow. Well, uh, I, the funny part is, is as a kid, I used to talk all the time in school and I used to be disciplined for that. And they used to say, you're never going to get ahead and you're never going to be able to do anything if you're talking all the time. Lo and behold, that's what they pay me to do. Right. Talk for six, eight me hours too. straight. <laughs> well, how did that happen? And, and, and can you, is it, is it something that you had to learn? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I ended up going to school in Kentucky, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Really? Auctioneer so school there. They actually There's have four, schools. They do. They have 14 in the country uh, that are uh, certificate, certified. Um, they all have the same base core curriculum. Uh, there's 14 of them. And I picked Kentucky. It was a fledgling school. Um, and I guess I just picture the early industry of tobacco auctions. So that kind of leaned me towards that school. And Michigan didn't have a school. Right. Didn't have a school. So, um yeah, of course. So are you guys actually saying words when you are talking fast or are sure. you just making stuff up? Well, there's, there's, <laughs> no, there's, there's two, there's, there's a, there's a bid caller and then there's people that are, are, you know, you could, you could tell the difference between a trained auctioneer. They call it the chant. 
Okay. So it's words spoken, and then they round them off, and then they bounce the words. So that's okay. how the chant is done. You guys, an apple. Well, I was telling you, you took the word. You're well, thinking. You're thinking exactly what I was thinking, and that is. <laughs> People are wondering what the heck you're talking about. And then the other thing, Chuck, I know. Chuck's like hitting me going, people want to hear this. I know they do. So let's pretend that that's well, starting to be I have to say, the school taught us that we only auction for money. Okay. We well, never do I, it. I, we for, we, 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 we only money. do it for money. All right. Well, uh, here, I got five bucks in my pocket right now. So, well, well wait, I already told you how much I'm going to pay so, for it. Let's see so. if you can find more in his pocket. All right. Well, uh, so it's a rounding off. So, what you're saying is you're asking a statement. So I, I I might say, are you able to, are you able to buy? Are you able to buy? And so I'll round that off. And then, so I'm asking you a question first and foremost. All right, here we go. Uh, we're on the money. So I'm the money now. How many dollars you want to bid? So I'm asking you, how many dollars do you want to bid? So I bounce it. How many dollars you want to bid? So then I'll ask you, $20 bid, hoop, hool, hoop, hool, hool, we're rounding it down, hool, hool, bid $20, hoop, bid $20, are you able to buy it, $20 bid, so bid, dollar, so you you take bid, dollar, and then the phrases, and you interchange those Okay. to do a chant, and every auctioneer does it differently, and usually it's all, we have a mentor, so those that have been in the industry for a long time, I've only been in the industry since 2011, so give us a little bit. Give, give us a little right, chance. All right, now, how many you want to bid? Now, somebody bid right there on $20. Bing, get about $20. Get about $20. Who bid 20 I got. How about $10? Would you do it? $10, now, 12 and a half. Bid now, get them on here now, here. Get them on now. Who will bid $12? Get them on now, 12. Who bid 12, 12, 12? Would you bid 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 12? Now, 15, get them a 15, 15, $15 bid. 15, get them a $15. Get them on $15. Will you bid $15? Are you able? to buy it $15 bid all in all done so it sounds like here now I'm gonna buy who got $15 bid now here I'm gonna buy all y'all in all done here now I'm gonna buy $15 gonna buy $15 all in all done so you crescendo it before you sell it okay so all right now I'm gonna buy 15 and I'm 15 gonna buy $15 bid sold awesome so what it's I, I, I'm just curious, like, what? But, I, but I have to admit that the school is really teaching us ethics because what we are is we're a contract. So I, I'll do an auction. I can do hundred items an hour. Wow. Not very much. Really? There's 60 minutes in an hour. Well, right. But so you, I shouldn't spend more than a minute selling an item. Cause if you don't think, if you don't know you want to buy it within a minute, I, I, I think we, you might be in the wrong market. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a long time. Yeah. If you've ever been, if you've ever been held, uh, you've ever been choked. <laughs> one minute's a long time. <laughs> yeah. I never looked at it like that before. Or, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and and so about a hundred. That's about the that's about the average. Okay. Now, if you're selling an item like uh, like we, did, I did a big Hummel auction. So it was all Hummels, which is. Um, Oh, I could get into tell you about the little glass figurines that were made by nuns in Germany, and they okay. were quite popular. So we've done it. We did a whole Hummel auction. So at some point, and where we're describing the Hummel, this is a little girl with an umbrella. This is a little boy feeding geese. This is a little boy on a fence. This is a little girl. At some point, it's three hundred items of the same thing. Right, right. So you can really squeeze it down. Because there's not a lot of description. See, because what you're using to describe the items, you're building value. When you're selling an item, you're building value. So you're going to have some descriptive words prior to the sale. 
you know. Uh, and I think I learned a lot about that in the restaurant industry as a waiter. I was a waiter for 20 years. That's kind of why I bounced around. And uh, my disease helped me with that job because I never had to get up in the morning. Right. And I could get cash in my hand every night. And the world of, of restaurants is lots of drinking and party all night. Because we serve drinks all day. We want to do it all night long. Right. So it really helped me with my disease to perpetuate me for 20 years of drinking and drugging. You know what I mean? And uh, so that, that idea of like, for, for example, when we're selling a dessert, are we selling, uh, I mean, we're going to call it, um, you know, we're going to use adjectives. We're going to describe that chocolate. Tasty. Tasty, delicious, um, decadence. We're going to come up with ideas and that's how we're going to sell it. It doesn't... It, so it's, you're painting a picture for them, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And when you're a re, when you're in the restaurant industry, a good waiter is a person is. It's not about. I, I used to be a trainer, and I, I they'd take these young guys and girls that would come in, and I say young, just young in the industry, not necessarily in age. And, and the, some are like order takers, right? And but when you're selling something, you want to upsell because the name of the game is the highest check average possible. One for the restaurant, but yet the world tips on a percentage. So That's you're right. trying to build that money in, in a certain fashion. So. They have all sorts of rules on how to how to set up the table and the restaurant might have this and that and mop the floor. I said, I don't have time. I only have you for a short period of time. These other trainers and the the restaurant itself and the staff will teach you all that. Probably the hard way. Once you don't mop the floor right, they'll come back and show you how to do it. You'll get <laughs> right. the lesson in that. But I'm gonna show you how to sell. I'm gonna show you how to sell. And you know, and then I'll you know, and I also tell the young people though that uh they're gonna make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show them how to make money. But if if, uh, if they're going to college or something, stay good doing that. Don't stay in this industry, I would tell them. So yeah. so another interesting thing here at the ranch and about you is you're a bee farmer. I don't even know what you call them, but I I, I did walk around the, uh, a beekeeper. Keeper. Okay. Well, a pollinator. I, how did that, you know, mm. come about? Well, let, let me run let me get let me get back a little bit on that auction thing. I want yeah, I want to yeah. finish that up. Oh, okay. And close that thought. Um so as a child, my father, uh, he's a hardened man. He's a Vietnam vet. Uh, he was, I was, they were married 13 years, my mother and father before I was born. Uh, I came late um, and they had been married so long. And if a lot of relationships don't always grow real close, sometimes they go back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a breathing of a relationship sometimes. And they were at the exhale when I was, when I came into the world. And uh, so there was a hardness there. And uh, I recognize it now. I didn't know then exactly how I had felt. And I think there's a, uh, an idea where the son always wants to overthrow the father anyways, no matter what. Uh, and it has to do with monarch thinking, I, uh, I believe. So I had, I had a, a relationship with my father that was, um, I didn't get a lot of the things that I felt that I wanted or needed. Uh, and as I got older and I reflected on it, I realized that my dad did the best he could at the time. He did the very best he could. And so the, he provided so much, but you know how it is, you know, we want, uh, or for me anyways, I want a certain thing and everything else falls to the wayside when I'm so f- uh, pinpoint focused mm-hmm. on what I think I should have. And uh, in that process, though, he took me around and did a lot of auctions. He would take me there. And I remember being at uh, Glarden's auction, Glarden become a state representative, uh, for the Republican Party mm-hmm. uh, on Owasso. And I remember going to his auction as a little boy, and boy, dressed in a nice shirt, cowboy hat. I don't know if anyone knew you guys well. I know one of the guys here wears a cowboy hat. And there's something <laughs> about a cowboy hat. Uh, any ladies out there probably will agree about the cowboy hat thing. But I saw the cowboy hat, and I seen this, this sharp-dressed man, and the whole crowd wanting to pay attention to him, hanging on every word he said. Mm-hmm. 
And then that rattle, and I'm kind of a wiggler anyways. <laughs> so I'm wiggling there. And, you know, my old man is like, you know, stop. Yeah. Relax. You know, he, he, my dad, my mother said my dad was never a kid that he was raised on a farm and went to Vietnam and come back a different man. He was never a kid. And so me being a kid, that was always an interruption sort of. Um, and I remember my father hanging around some folks and it seemed like they talked over me a lot of times. Like I was a piece of furniture and I understand it. I understand it. You know, the kid, the kid, the kid. But I remember Ben Glarden coming off that stand and coming down and asking me how I was doing. <laughs> you want to know how I feel? I mean, I, I fell in love with the moment, yeah. with, probably with the man, uh, what he was and the image of him. And, and I remember thinking, oh, I wish my dad was him, you know, yeah. and I don't today, you know, but as a kid, you know, we're, we're very literal, mm-hmm. we're very literal as a child. We have to be careful how we, how we talk to children. I, I like that idea. We, we don't try to tell them no and don't and stop. They say, I, I don't know about who says, but I've heard 72 times we say no, don't stop. For every one time we say yes, go and good. Right, and uh, I and I, I don't have any kids, but uh, that idea of constricting them. Uh, so when they ask me how I feel, I'm like, "Wow, this is amazing!" Right, right. And uh, so time goes on, and and uh, I uh, remember in one of my uh, drunken just run down spots in my life, you know, come with my tail between my legs, and I love books. I've always loved books, and I attribute that to when I was a little boy, my mother. I loved comic books. And I, when, if I behaved at the store and didn't touch the clothes and didn't do anything bad or distracting, or, or, or that she would let me get a comic book. And I remember looking at those characters, and I'll admit, the villains, I wanted to know what they were saying. I want to know what they were saying. Mm-hmm. So I remember breaking down the words, breaking down the words in the comic books. And, and uh, I don't write, but uh, I read a lot. And I attribute that to the comic book. I do tribute to the comic book because they want to know what they said. And if you look at the comic books in the seventies, they were pretty heavy content. The, the, what they would talk about and the, the structure of it. Now, Marvel, I'm a Marvel fan. And uh, so I, I attribute that to that. And so when I was down on my luck, I, you know, I went to the local library and I needed just something to distract me from mm-hmm. the real world out there. Cause I, like I had debt, I had acquired debt and problems and problems at work. You know, that's what, the way I drink. Once I pick up a drink, I don't stop. Right. So that usually everything unwinds. And so as, as I took this little time off, I said, well, I'm going to, you know, I need a new career. I need something different. I, I'm just, I'm just tired of my, of my life. So I went to read about auctioneering, right? I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I'll be in a, maybe I'll do this. Right. So I come across a book by a man named Stan Perkins. Little did I know who it was. The library actually had to have it shipped over. So it took a day to get there. So I remember going home and then go, the library calls me to come get the book. So I got the book. It's called Itinerary Auctioneer. And it was Stan Perkins wrote this book back in the 50s. And he wrote about uh, about being an auctioneer, uh, about the lifestyle of an auctioneer, what mm-hmm. it looks like, what the character is, what what he sees and what he, you know, in this. And I remember loving it and like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that little thought stayed in my mind about that auctioneer, Ben Glarden. And as I read this book, they talked about Duffield Road. <laughs> well, I live right down from Duffield Road. And they talked about Swartz Creek. And, and I remember making this correlation that this guy is a professional auctioneer writing a book, and he's from right down the road. It didn't seem like he was so far away. I know they say you got to bring an expert in a, uh, at least an hour away because you can't be an expert in a hometown. <laughs> right, exactly. You can't be. Even Jesus even Jesus in the Christian story couldn't get anybody to follow him out of his hometown. Right. you got to be at least an hour away to bring an expert in. 
That's how it works. Yep. It's the mentality. Of people. You have nobody nobody I went hand. to school with thinks I'm an expert on bees, motorcycles, auctioneering, yeah. or anything that I talk about. That's right. They remember me when I was a kid. Or, or what but people an hour away from here, you're an expert. That's right. <laughs> so I so I was I was surprised. I was surprised that it was so local. I liked it. Yeah. It let me know that I'm it's it's possible. Mm-hmm. And so as I read three quarters of the way through the book, he mentions in his book, he says, You can't be a good auctioneer with a pint in your pocket. <laughs> And I remember three quarters to the book. And I remember sitting there and reading that. And I believed everything he had said up to that point. So there's no way I couldn't believe that too. And I wanted to shut the book. I thought, well, I like to drink so much that I'm, I can't do this either. You know, uh, I originally wanted to be an art teacher um, with a minor in psychology and work in the junior high to help kids do art and I think that's the turning point in junior high and you could launch them into be a true artist. Mm-hmm. And also that's the struggling time, that transition time in junior high would I be a good counselor. And a counselor in math, it's pretty, math is math. But when you do an art class, you can see emotions. You can see each struggle in their art. Can't see it in a math problem. Right. So I figured being an artist, or art teacher would connect me to that thing. But I realized that I like to drink and party so much that I was never going to be able to work in a school system. So I gave that up. I dropped out of school knowing that. Mm-hmm. That's how strong the obsession in my mind was about this. So as I read that, I wanted to close it up and say, oh, I guess I'm not going to be an auctioneer either. But I, read it, I ended up finishing the book. Uh, I, continued, I continued to live the lifestyle after reading that book for quite a few years. And uh, after I reached that crossroads that I talked about, I opened that store we talked about. Yeah. And as I was in the store, I thought, well, I'm going to go to auctioneer school. And I ended up in Kentucky. And uh, come to find out, as I joined the Michigan Auctioneer Association, Stan Perkins is the first auctioneer in the Hall of Fame. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm going to jump in here, Johnny, because standing in Redbeard's general store, downtown Flushing, Michigan, home of Twilight Tuesdays, Redbeard told me uh, this story and and told me that quote about Sam Perkins, and I ended up going home telling my mom how I just met this auctioneer, and he told me all these stories and everything, and my mom, kind of surprisingly to me, said, well, you do know that your Aunt Artis was Stan Perkins' clerk back in the day when this all happened, when he was writing this book. Why don't I set you up and you take Redbeard out to on Duffield Road to meet your Aunt Artis? So Redbeard and I loaded up in the car. <laughs> Amazing. Drove by Stan Perkins' barn. So his barn's still standing there. Make a left down Duffield Road, and we walk into the farmhouse that she grew up with her whole life, and all the knickknacks and everything uh, we saw. And then as we came back, we actually went to Stan Perkins's uh, door and just got out of the car, knocked on the door, and Stan's daughter just happened to be at the house. They sold the house, the farm, Broadblade Farms. Mm-hmm. And they sold it, and she just happened to be there to clean out the office. His his office was attached to his home, a lot like mine here. And so Aunt Artist had given me a couple copies of books, and they were autographed. And she said, you can borrow these as long as you want. You know, she was 80, probably. Wow. She just passed away uh, over 90, yeah. Yeah. So in her way of giving them to me, like, they're yours. Yeah. So we go to the house where his office was. His daughter's there. We tell the story to her daughter. I say who I am. She says, well, come on in then. And she lets me sit at his desk. And I swear his desk is set up just like the way I would have mine. If you were to see my office, a town office, the way I had that at one point and in my store, so much the same. 
so comfortable. Like, and then she had given me a handful of books because he had, he was very prolific. He had wrote maybe fourteen books. Oh wow! And she gave me, and it was so weird. She gave me a handful of books that I could have, and they were not the same. Like it built the collection of books. Wild, eh? Yeah. Wild. That's yeah. crazy. Meticulous yeah. files. Every sale he ever made, there was a file. Every auction never did. Every sale he ever made, there was a file cabinet with the record of that sale. Just real in quick. That office. How can people find you if they want something auctioned off? Redbeardsauction.com. Okay. That's it. Cool. They can this also segment. find me, they can also find me there if they'd like to uh, get married because I do do that also. <laughs> Wait, you marry people? <laughs> yeah, I do. Well, I, I I've never been married, but it's funny. There's three sisters. There's three sisters, and I I say I married two of them, and people are like, "What?" And I did I did the service for them. I was the uh, minister for the service. And the funny I don't know if it's funny or not, but the <laughs> third sister she left town, went down to Tennessee, and got married. Didn't use me, and she got a divorce, and she's back in town. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was actually in charge of dogs for that wedding. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So so wait a second. So so you do weddings? Have you ever done a funeral? I have done a few funerals. Uh, uh, they're. Uh, a lot different than a wedding, of course, uh, but, uh, uh, but surprisingly not. Surprisingly not, because if if they have, you know, we transcend this. You know, the Egyptians say we get to die, and I like that. They say we get to die, because yeah. everybody does it. There's no way around it. <laughs> so the idea that we get to do it is a, is a blessing yeah, to yeah. transcend this world for the next. I believe in an afterlife. So the idea of a funeral, it's a mourning time, but it's also a... Time of passage, three days is is the time that seems to be, no matter what culture, whether it's Christian, uh, I've been over to Bhutan, the country of Bhutan in the mm-hmm. Himalayas, and they take theirs and leave them on the mountainside for three days. They feel that the soul remains in the body for three days before it transcends to the next experience. Uh, and I like that. And I, and I, and I'll, you know, I stick with that. Um, I, and I, my funerals are, and the weddings that I do I cater to the people. Yeah. I cater to the people. I, I'm not, I think, I think that, um, death and life and weddings are open for everybody. It's not exclusive. So whatever they need, I try to provide. I love that. And with only a couple minutes left, I do want to jump in, jump into being a beekeeper. <laughs> and, and you guys, I, I told you at the very beginning that, that Redbeard is definitely a unique young man and you can see why. I mean, oh, he's done a little bit of everything and does a little bit of everything. So I want to talk real quick about being a beekeeper and, and did you just one day, you know, sitting here having a cup of coffee and you visualized a bunch of bees in the backyard and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, or, well, did, or did you get sick of buying honey? I mean, what was it? Well, there's, there's a, uh, and I'll tell you, I, I like symbols and I like, uh, design and a lot of esoteric things have the beehive, a representation of it. So I spotted that long ago in some of the heavier readings that I've done and in, in some of the, um, esoteric books. And so I, I was intrigued by it right away. There's something about that whole thing, the whole bee process. It's a civilization. It's, uh, the idea that honey is one of the only foods that lasts forever. They found it in the Egyptian tomb, still edible. Um, so it would have been three years now. I decided to start my bee 
keeping experience here at Spikehorn Ranch. And what I really want to do is I want to have a pollinator. I want to have a place where pollinators can come. There's an importance behind it. It's like the main line of our food source. I would like to have it where people could come and get the bee experience here. And I, I did that last year. I started the process and it's, there's a lot to it. There's mm-hmm. a lot to it. Uh, I'd like to have a place where people could come and see the beer experience, uh, whether it was a 4-H group or a Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or, and they could get an interaction with it in a safe, because most people have no idea where the bee, how the bee works and what it is. Right. I, I, I was dumb to it. I have no idea how it works. So I even, some people even say a bee bites you. I don't know how they can bite. Sting. They sting, sting you. <laughs> have you ever been stung? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think they start to recognize who do you, you are. Ha- do you have one of those really cool like outfits I do. that, that you I wear? I do have one of those. Uh, do you wear I, it? I have a friend named Ed. Uh, he is my was my liaison into it. Okay. He's the one that tutored me uh, through the process. Uh, so I ended up getting... Uh, First a couple hives, and then I learn how to split them, and, and then I sell the honey, and then I collect the pollen, which is kind of unique. I actually collect the pollen off their feet. So when they're coming into the hive, I harvest the pollen before it actually gets in. I could show you some. Before we leave, we all have a spoonful of it. Okay. It, it's uh, the superfood. They say it's a superfood. All right. Uh, and it's... I don't, Tom could probably talk about the bee pollen. <laughs> does does he have a bee suit? Yes, but when he asks me to come over and to use this bellows to kind of give the bees some smoke, yeah, no bee suit for me. Just <laughs> he only short, has one, right? Shorts, t-shirts, and a sandals, and then he kind of gets into it. He's a little bit farther away. Hey, grab me that last rack. I'm in there grabbing racks. No bee suit, no gloves. Yeah. But they're yeah, not aggressive. They're not aggressive as one thinks. They don't turn into an arrow and attack you. <laughs> so we're gonna wrap things up, Redbeard. I can't thank you enough for hanging out with us and, and talking to us. It, 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 do you have any like last comments or anything? I know we do, we talked a lot uh, uh, about a lot of different things today, but do you have any last thoughts to to end this podcast? Well, with with the the bee the bees do the work. I'm just the caretaker of them. And, and I think that's, we're that on everything. Uh, everything is temporary here. We're just caretakers of it. Uh, whether it's a person, a friend, uh, a pet, an uh, automobile, a, a sale, a deal, an education, a book, uh, an idea. We're just the caretakers of it. And, uh, you know, the paradox of when I share an idea that it multiplies, that's a powerful paradox. Because in, in the third dimension, if I give you something, I no longer have it. But in the fourth dimension, like an idea... When I give it to you, it just multiplies. It's reinforced in me, and then it multiplies on who I give it to. And, uh, you know, that's uh, why we're at this table. Yeah. I cannot thank you enough for hanging out with us. Tom Whitmire, Chuck Dodge, thank you guys so much. And again, everybody, I mean, we are hanging out at one of the coolest ranches I've been to anyways. And uh, this is Johnny D, the Motivational Cowboy, telling you, be safe, have fun, and have yourself an outstanding day. We'll see you next time on the Outstanding Life Podcast. Outstanding Life is a Soul Bridge Studio.